Welcome to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast aims to bring the sermon from our Sunday morning services to you each and every week. We are currently in our sermon series, Stories of Christmas. In this series, we are walking through Luke 2 and the stories of different people who played a role in the Christmas story. From Mary and Joseph to the shepherds and the Magi, each of these stories will culminate in the birth of Jesus. So join us as we share the stories of Christmas. Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. I love that we sang with these hymnals this morning. Now, my children have a little bit um, more of a heads up on the things that we're going to do on a Sunday morning um, than most of you. I'm fully aware of that. Um, But it didn't dawn on me this week to tell the 17-year-old that I was sitting next to in the first service that this was how we sang all of our church songs when I was a kid. Um, It also didn't dawn on me that I was going to have to tell her that you sing the first line of All the Rose, then the second line of All the Rose, and then the third. Had she not known the Christmas songs, she was totally lost and leaned over and said, it's all out of order. And then I realized she also doesn't know what a rotary phone is either. So, I mean, it's how how we sang our songs, and, and it's the songs and the words that we declare about the goodness of Jesus that matter so much. If you've been tracking along with us here for this series called Stories of Christmas, you know that we've talked about the specific central characters to the nativity narrative. We talked about Mary the first week and included the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah and the birth of John the Baptist that was foretold to them too. We talked about and celebrated with Joseph the following week and the fact that he was included and a very important part of the story. Last week we dove into the idea of shepherds, the first visitors to the baby Jesus. And today we make our way to another character that's probably present in your super nice ceramic nativity that you don't want your children to touch. It's the Magi, the wise men. And I'll just go ahead and tell you, we want to dispel any issues. Like we're going to dive into the parts of the story today that have become really commonplace to us, but are not really accurate according to history. Because the truth of the wise men is that they didn't make their way and have to maneuver around shepherds to honor Jesus that night. They most likely arrived up to two years later and did not encounter a sweet little infant being rocked by his mother. mother. They encountered a toddler. And because we're visual learners, I wanted you guys to be able to experience this today. Come here, Jalen. Hey, yes. (laughs) Yes, we, yes. He He did this first service, and so he's highly aware of the fact that there's presents in this bag. Okay, can you say hi to all my friends? Hi. Hey. Do you know how old you are? Are you two years old? Are you three years old? You're somewhere around there. 
I think it matters that, that you and I look at sweet little nativity scenes every year and, and try to imagine these wise men coming from a distant land to find a sweet little baby being held by his brand new I just gave birth mother. And, and then to realize that, nope, they got there up to two years later. Herod was still on the throne, which is another clue that our nativity stories don't necessarily go along with what we think is true because Jesus wasn't born at 0 B.C. A.D. either. Herod died 4 B.C., and for him to still be on the throne, threatened by the arrival of a new king, that means that Jesus came a couple of years before that. And so here we are. This is your visual today. You're looking at Jalen. So in Matthew chapter 2, which is where we start our scripture story today, it's Matthew chapter 2 where the wise men arrived. And so you can turn your Bibles there if you want to. Do you want to sit beside me? Yeah. There you go. We're going to open this in just a minute, but can I read you something first? Oh, he's excited. This morning, we had no idea how this was going to go. Could have been a train wreck, but you're doing awesome. Can you share by Ollie? You got your owl? It says that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, magi from the east, and it matters that they came from the east, and all of the passages of scripture that we're going to dive into this morning, because you should have been invited before you came here today to wear stretchy pants, because we're going to gorge ourselves on scripture from the Old Testament all the way through the New, to be reminded of who these people were, and the geography from which they came. They came from the east to Jerusalem, and they asked, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? They knew what they were looking for. We saw his star when it rose, and we've come to worship him when King Herod heard this, he was disturbed and all of Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests, we're going to talk about these guys too, and the teachers of the law, he asked them, where was not the king, but the Messiah to be born? In Bethlehem, they began to quote Micah 5.2. In Bethlehem, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among all the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd. We talked about the importance of that word, my people, Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time that the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, quote, so that I may go and worship him too. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star that they had seen when it rose ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child, not sweet little infant Jesus, but toddler Jesus was. It stopped on the place where he was. And when they saw the star, they were overjoyed on coming into the house not the stable, not the cave, not the manger, but a house. They found the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. And the Bible says that opening their treasures, opening their treasures, they presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And I want to talk about those gifts today. I did not bring you gold, frankincense, and myrrh, but can we show everybody what it is? Yeah, you're going to take it with you. It's he. You spoiled it. We were going to go that one second. Let's do this one first. It's the gift card. This is to Amazon, and y'all, this is like gold. I took this from the 17-year-old this morning. Um, yeah, we can put it in your pocket. That's good, right here. Can you stand up? Here we go. You get to keep that. There we go. That gold would have symbolized, what's a tot? Well, hold on one second. We're going we're gonna to look at the rest of it. What's a toddler going to do with gold? Well, it symbolized the king, the ruler, the royalty that he was. And then the gift of frankincense. And you know that Jesus wasn't just a king, he was also a priest. A priest who brings our worship before God and makes it pleasing to him. And so that incense, here's the candle. You can hold that again too. Okay. You can blow it out. Yeah, there you go. Don't drink it. <laughs> that incense that would have been burning on the altar, recognizing that he was a priest. Come back, we got one more gift. And the myrrh. 
that fragrant myrrh that would have been used to embalm bodies, symbolizing that not only was he the priest who brought the sacrifice, but that he himself was the sacrifice. It's air freshener. It makes things smell good. Yeah. This whole picture of the gifts, you, you don't want the stuff that smells good? You just want the gold. I got it. I do too. Why don't you take all of this to Miss Kim? You're upstaging me just a little bit. Everybody give him a hand. You got a present again. We planned on keeping him longer, but it was clear that y'all were not going to pay attention. Each one of those gifts fully representing not the toddler that they were presented to, but the king and the priest and ultimately the sacrifice that he was. And so we dive into that story today. It says in verse 12 that the wise men were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. So they didn't go and tell him, hey, we found him. Great. No, they returned back by another route. And I want you to know something about these guys this morning, something that I think matters. And it starts back at the beginning of the book of Genesis. Rather than Rather than making a name for themselves, these magi sought the name above all names. If you go back to the book of Genesis in chapter 11, verse 2, it says that the people of God had made their way and they settled in this place called the Plain of Shinar. And if you know anything about biblical geography, what you understand is that that is the place where the Babylonian Empire would hundreds of years later reign, where they would set up territory. And you know what happens in that story. They, they build a city for themselves and it says in verse 4, hey, come, let us build a city with a tower that reaches the heavens. When I was a kid, I read that story and I thought, oh, they want to build a tower that reaches to the heavens. How admirable. They just want to get to God. When in fact, that wasn't true at all. They didn't want to get to God. They wanted to be God. Come and let us build a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we will make a name for ourselves. And that mantra, that, that effort, that issue, that whole idea of the Babylonian mantra, I am and there is none besides me, come and let us make a name for ourselves, has lasted throughout all millennia. And it's kind of where we are today. It's us in this room going, come, let us make a name for myself. Let it be all about me. And sadly, when I'm not checked in the right spirit, it's, hey, Nick Allen, let's make a name for yourself. That's not the name they sought because they came to who Joseph was reminded in chapter 1 of the book of Matthew, verse 21, she, Mary, would give birth to a son. This is the angel pronouncing to him in a vision that he was included in the story. She's going to have a son, and you, you, Dad, are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He's worthy. And Paul explained that to us because in Philippians he writes to the church, and he's just describing this Jesus who, in nature, God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, a poor infant born to poor parents, being made in human likeness, even a terrible toddler, human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That toddler in the house may be clutching his mother when he saw strangers come in. That toddler in the house may be jumping and running amok in the moment. That toddler in the house already had the name that was above every other name. One question that I always ask about the Magi, how did they know 
Like, how did they know to go look? Like, it matters who these guys are. It matters how these guys knew. And this is it. And it's present throughout all of Scripture. And that's why we bounce around so much between Old and New Testament, because there's something so powerful that's here for us. How did they know? In the sovereignty of God, in God's great sovereignty, his prophetic plans always not just when Jesus came, but always from the very beginning extended beyond the borders and included beyond what anybody would have assumed that it included. This place right here, the plain of Shinar, where Babylon started, right from the inception where the people got it so frightfully wrong. Let's make a name for ourselves. It became part of the history of the first people who sought the one who was only ever truly right. You go to the book of Daniel, and in chapter 2, there's this moment where Daniel and all of the exiles, those people from Israel that were carted off to live in the land of Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, I am, and there is none besides me. Let's come and make a name for ourselves. Wanted to build not a big tower, but a really big statue. He had this incredible dream, and he wanted his magi, his magicians, his sorcerers, his astrologers, his, his soothsayers to come and interpret, to tell him what the dream was and to tell him what it meant, and none of them could provide that. None of them could tell him, except for this one Hebrew kid named Daniel, who tells him what the dream was, who tells him what the dream meant, and then he goes on at the end to say, this isn't my power, this isn't my divination, this isn't me looking at tea leaves, crystal balls, or dead animals, we'll get there in a minute. This is the revealer of all mysteries. And this revealer of all mysteries has been revealing his will and his way and his word and his son to all people among all nations since the very beginning there's this story in the book of Numbers, this fellow named Balaam. He also had a donkey, and you can read about that story, but it's not this one. This fellow named Balaam was a soothsayer, not an Israelite, an Armenian, a, a guy that was known in the region for being somebody who could tell the future and who could pronounce blessings and curses on people. And at one point when the Israelites made their way out of Egypt and they were going around into this promised land, circling all these encampments, trying to figure out when God was going to help them take these cities that he had promised to them, the king of Moab hears about the Israelites coming. He's stressed out. So he sends this delegation to go and find Balaam, not to get to know what the future is, but to pronounce a curse on God's people. Now, in those days, there was this practice of not looking at the stars to tell the future, not looking at tea leaves to tell the future, not looking at crystal balls to tell the future, not reading special cards to tell the future, but opening up the dead carcass of an animal, strong stomachs only, and looking at the placement of their organs to tell what the future was. And it says that when Balak sent the delegation, he sent them with the fee of divination. And that could have been money that they were going to have to pay to Balaam in order to get the curse or they just had to bring the dead animal with them. Who knows? But he goes, and Balaam spoke this prophecy. It's written down for us in Numbers chapter 24. It says, Balaam, son of Baor, the prophecy of one whose eye sees clearly, the prophecy of one who hears the words of God, who has knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate, whose eyes are open. I see him, but not now. Something's coming that's not yet here. I behold him, but not near. A star, y'all, this, this Christmas story includes a star, will come out of Jacob. A scepter, that's a ruler, that's a king, what will rise out of Israel. In the book of Genesis, Jacob was promised that the scepter would never leave his family. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of the people of Sheth. This prophecy 
that Balaam was speaking, not a curse that he was pronouncing, says something's going to come out of Israel. Not today, but one day. Something's going to come out of Israel, and people will be waiting for it. People will be watching for it. You guys are doomed because of it, because there is something coming. You fast forward to the end of Daniel's life. The exile has continued. He lived 70 years in the land of Babylon, not being able to return with his own people like we talked about with Ezra and Nehemiah. He's still in Babylon, not under the Babylonian regime, but under the Persian one, getting visions from the Lord. And in Daniel chapter 9, he says, while I was still in prayer, Gabriel, that name should ring a bell. He's the dude that visited Zechariah, told him about John the Baptist. He's the dude that visited Mary, told her not to be afraid that she was going to be a mama. While I was still in prayer, Daniel says in Daniel chapter 9, Gabriel, the man I had seen in the earlier vision, came to me in swift flight about the time of the evening sacrifice. He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. And he proceeded, if you continue to read in Daniel chapter 9, to give them times and times and specificity of times when the Savior, Messiah, would come where they needed to look. And you better believe that Daniel knew those words. And maybe it's my speculation that all the people right there in the Babylonian and the Medo-Persian Empire knew those words. So that hundreds of years later, when the time finally came, those people were included in the in the manner of wise leaders who knew to look. Wow. Is it possible that they waited that long? That these moments that were recorded in Scripture way, way, way back in the book of Numbers and made alive for us in the book of Daniel, that God, when he chose that specific season to reveal to his people something amazing about himself, he included other nations That's what matters to us out of this story. That's what we get to be signaled by. So that when Paul finishes in Philippians chapter 2, he says that at the name of who? Jesus. Every knee, not just the Jewish knees, not just the Christian knee, but every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Right from the beginning, if you go back to the promise of Abraham, there has always been an inclusion of not just a nation, not just a family, but nations that all of us would be invited, that all of us would be included, that all of us would have an opportunity to see and to know who Jesus is and why he came. There has always been a provision throughout all of Scripture for the people on the outside to be invited to the inside. And we see that through the wise men. John chapter 10, we talked about this last week. Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, hey guys, I'm the good shepherd. That, that, that shepherd that we're talking about, the one who takes care of his sheep. He says, I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them in also. He started that right from the beginning. When magi from the east, not part of their heritage, not part of their covenant promise, were invited to come and see news that had been passed down to them from the revealer of all mysteries told them when to look and where to look and what they would find when they got there it reminds us yet again over and over and over again jesus is for people that don't have jewish heritage jesus is for people we need to hear this that don't speak english 
Jesus is for people that don't look like us. In fact, if we were to go back in time, we would realize that Jesus didn't look like us. I grew up not only with hymnals, but I grew up with pictures of blonde hair, blue-eyed Jesus. And he had far more melanin in his skin than I do. He was different. And it's good for us to be reminded. It's good for us to know that the Magi got there a couple of years later. It's good for us to know that Jesus was not a white guy. It's good for us to know that this Jesus, this Savior, not only came for all people, but right from the beginning was assembling all nations of people. Shepherds on a hillside and wise leaders from afar to come and to herald this good news. I think it's neat that God used the cosmos to draw them close. That it was stars. I'm really glad that it wasn't dead. That would change the real Christmas narrative. If those wise men were having to carry around a dead body to look at its organs to try to figure out where Bethlehem was on a map, ooh, that will be hard. I'm glad it was the stars. And they looked to determine their way. God says to us, and Paul writes it down for us in Romans chapter 1, that since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen. It's one thing to look at the cosmos and recognize and see how grand and how good our God is, and you can do that. You can go on a hillside and talk to Jesus. Like, you can go and look at nature and recognize the power of God. It's grand that God used the cosmos to draw them close, but they needed scripture to make it clear. And I know we hear that from people like, oh, I don't need church. I don't really need to read my Bible. I can just go out and have a relationship with God. And I experience him when I look at the trees and the mountains. And that is admirable. Like, I like indoors, but you do you. (laughs) But you need scripture to make it clear. Like, the cosmos can tell you how powerful God is, but it's scripture that tells you what his name is. Like, Like, the nature around you can declare how good he is, but it's his word that tells the story of who we are and why we need him so desperately. These guys needed scripture to make it clear because the star led them to the region, but they had to show up at the palace to ask the king and the king's leaders where the exact location would be. And so he called together all the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And when you read teachers of the law in scripture, I need you to read Pharisees. And when you read Pharisees, I need you to think, oh, those are the people that really didn't like Jesus. They were really stressed out by who he was and the way he led. It was those guys who knew. And what did they do? Didn't miss a beat. Didn't have to go read about it. Didn't have to grab their concordance and certainly didn't have to Google it. They knew and they quoted Micah 5 too. Oh yeah, it's in Bethlehem. These guys had scripture. These guys had stories. They had the same message from the book of Daniel that had written written down generations before that they could have been reading over and over and over again, checking their watches and checking the stars to know when the moment was going to come. But it was guys from the east that came and heralded the good news that he was, in fact, here. We should note the people who knew but didn't go. It should stand out to us. The people who knew that it wasn't the king of the Jews that they were looking for, but in fact, the Messiah, Herod, didn't ask. Hey, guys, um, we've got these men. They're outside. They said um, um, they've come here to look for the new king of the Jews, which is kind of weird because I'm the king of the Jews, and that stresses me out just a little bit. But they want to find a new king. He went to those guys and said, hey, tell me what the scriptures say about where the Messiah is to be born. And so they said in Micah, these guys knew to look but didn't. That should be a signal for us in our lives today. Do not make spiritual assumptions about anybody. I think we do that sometimes. 
I think we look at the fact that we're from the South, and sometimes we call it the Bible Belt, and we just say, oh, yeah, everybody here has heard about Jesus. Or, or we look at the fact that somebody comes from a religious family, or they come from a family that went to church. Oh, yeah, well, surely they know the gospel message, truth, and hope that's found in Jesus. Or maybe we look at our neighbors, and we think, well, they're kind of religious, and they're su- certainly super nice, and they're very generous. Clearly, they are. do not make spiritual assumptions about anybody. If it was not safe for those magi to make a spiritual assumption about those religious leaders, do not make those kind of assumptions about the people in your life. Just go ahead and tell. Just go ahead and tell the story. Just go ahead and give the testimony. Just go ahead and empower people to know that, like, even if you think they already know, don't assume that they know because they may not know. So go ahead and give them the good news of the hope that you found in Jesus Christ because there may be people who are in this room who know the story who can answer the questions. They knew to look, but they didn't. And their lives haven't been changed by the message of hope that comes from Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Do not make a spiritual assumption about the, just go ahead and, better safe than sorry, just tell everyone who Jesus is and why he came and why all of this matters so much. Don't make assumptions about the people in your lives because the people that you think might know may in fact not. And so you ask, like, why, why did they spend all those years and all those resources? Like, why were they so fascinating? Why did they wait so long? And why did they finally come? Well, to me, it would be curiosity. Like, I would say, my mercy. I just want to know if what we've been waiting on this long, if what Daniel said that far ago, if like all of the things that my uncle and my grandfather and all these people passed down to me in this moment are actually true in any way, shape, or form. No, they came to worship. That's what they said. We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. And that's the greatest lesson that you and I can learn from the wise men. First, we worship when we seek. We got to dig in. We got to look for Jesus. We got to examine truth. That's what Herod said to them in verse 8. Hey, how about you guys go and seek him? Go find him in Bethlehem, and when you do, tell me, and I'll go worship him too. Like, we worship when we seek, when we go after Jesus. We also worship when we bow. That's what they did. When they came into the house, they were overjoyed. And verse 11 tells us that that they literally laid down and bowed down and worshiped Jesus. I don't know if you've ever, like, got on your knees or bowed down in front of a two-year-old. But you better be careful because they will jump on you. (laughs) I don't know what that moment was like with toddler Jesus running around the house. But these guys came. And when they experienced him, they didn't see a toddler running around the house. They saw a king and a messiah who would change the world that they had waited a lifetime for. And they came and they bowed down in front of him. For us, bowing down, you might do that from time to time. In your personal time with the Lord, in in your quiet moments where you're reading scripture, you might actually fall prostrate and bow down before the great God of the universe himself. I would do that as a demonstration this morning, but then one of you would have to come and help me up, and that would be weird. But maybe it's not bowing down with our bodies. Maybe it's bowing down with our lives. Maybe it's living in complete and total surrendered submission, yielding our will and our way to him. We also worship when we give. We saw that with the gifts, these extravagant gifts that bore so much meaning. Gold for a king, frankincense for a priest, myrrh for the sacrifice to prepare the lamb of God. Imagine what those moments were like to open up those gifts and see what they meant. 
they also would have provided a hefty income for that family to be able to afford to go and live in Egypt for a while, just saying. But when we come to God, we bow down and we also present gifts. We, we, we give out of obedience. We give out of generosity. We give until the point where it hurts, and it's a sacrifice. We give in response to who God is for what he's done and why it matters today. Like we want to bow down in reverence, but then we also want to give in obedience, and that's part of the, the worship that we can learn from this group of people. And when we worship, we're changed. It's low-hanging fruit to say, well, they were warned in a dream and they went home a different route. But the symbolism is there, that you and I might go back differently than the way we came in this morning. And that's our prayer every Sunday, and we pray it often, like, Lord, may we leave different than the way that we got here. May we be changed by you and by your God. Has Christmas changed you? Has it made you different? Has, has it altered your life? And I know that we're going to spend so much time this Christmas in talking about Santa Claus and elves and reindeer and Home Alone. That's a really good series of movies, only the first two. Like, we're going to talk about all of the super irrelevant cultural Christmas things, but are we also making much of Jesus so that kids like Jalen, it matters that you guys have in a, in a visual picture today that when the wise men arrived to present their gifts to a king, they were laying them down at the feet of a toddler. Are we making much about that story so that not just this toddler, but all the toddlers down the hall and all the toddlers in our lives, are we making so much about this story so that all of the elementary schools, not in this room because they'd be loud, but all the ones that are upstairs, so that all of the kids and students and next generation people in our lives, are we making so much of Jesus that they see, whew, that's what we glean about Christmas. And we're so changed, we can't help but make oh so much about him. Those magi, those sorcerers, those astrologers from the east, they were willing to do whatever it took to give their absolute all. You contrast that with Herod, who was willing to do whatever it took to remain in control. So when those wise men had gone, verse 13, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. I'm glad they took Mary along. She would have been a really necessary part of this story at this moment. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he, Joseph, got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. It says in verse 16 that when Herod realized that he'd been outwitted by the Magi, they didn't come back and say, hey, we found him. Come and join us as we worship him. He had been outwitted by the Magi. He was furious, and he gave orders to kill all of the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity who were infants, right? No, two years old and under in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. Those magi were willing to go as far as they had to go and do whatever they had to do and bring whatever they had to give in order to give their all to Jesus. And Herod was willing to do whatever it took to stay in control. We, those of us in this room, are always one or the other. 
we're the people who are ready to do absolutely everything to lay our feet at Jesus, or we're the people clutching the steering wheel of our lives saying that we want to remain in control. I'm going to make a name for myself. I am, and there is none besides me. We're going to keep that Babylonian mantra, or we're going to adopt the one of Jesus that says sacrifice. Like, we're going to understand that we are to be a people who lay our absolutely everything at his feet, or a people who will do anything to stay in control of our very own lives. The Bible reminds us over and over and over again that Jesus, he is far more than everything that we think. More than anything else, the wise men, these pagan worshipers from a distant land who had been looking and waiting for a really long time, they remind us that Jesus is worthy. He's worthy of our all. And rather than be those people who are clutching at the steering wheels of our lives to remain on the throne of our own existences, we want to be a Christmas people who are so changed by the gift that God gave that we would give up everything for him. At Christmas time, we talk a lot about Advent. And the word Advent means come, that, that, that Christ came. And we talk about the hope that he brought and the joy that it brings and the love and the peace that are a result of Jesus Christ coming into the world that Christmas. And at communion, we celebrate the fact that there will be a second advent, that he will come again. This morning when you came in, you likely picked up or were handed a set of elements. And if you didn't get those, we have them at the tables over to my right and left. We have them at a table in the back by the Christmas tree. And we have them right here. This is like your friend's house. You just get up and walk to the kitchen when you need something. So I'd love for everybody to have these elements today. So just hop up and grab them if you need to. On the night that he was arrested, tried, and convicted, on the eve where he would be crucified, he took elements that were reminders of an Old Testament miracle that God had rescued people from Egypt, that he had brought them into the promised land, that he had given them a covenant to live by. And he put a new spin on what those ancient elements were. That it wouldn't be the body and the blood of a lamb that was sacrificed on an altar. We talked last week about the shepherds on the hillside and that they very well likely could have been guarding the sheep that would have been brought to the altar in the temple to be sacrificed for the sins of the people. And it would no longer be that sacrificial system that forgave Israel of her sins, but it would be Jesus once and for all who gave his life so that we might have access to the very throne room of God. And it matters that rulers came and that rulers presented him with gifts and that rulers waited and sought and worshiped our king because he's worthy. They knew even before the world would know the reason why, because he sacrificed his life. So this morning I invite you to take back the small tab that's revealing a tiny little gluten-free wafer. And what it represents is so much bigger than what it actually is. This is a reminder for us that the baby that was born, that the infant that the shepherds saw, that the toddler that the wise men worshipped was ultimately going to be a sacrificial savior so that you and I might have peace with God. We take it and we remember Jesus.
Scripture says without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. There's no remission of guilt. And so Jesus, when his blood was shed, offered up a sacrifice, the only worthy sacrifice that would atone for the sins of all mankind, past, present, and future. Paul wrote that as long as we do this, every time we do this, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. Advent. When we talk about Christmas, we celebrate the reality of the first advent, Jesus Christ coming into the world. When we get to Easter, when we come to communion, we proclaim the second advent, that Jesus will come again, and that because of his blood, we can be forgiven. Take to remember Jesus. Lord, we tell you today that we are so grateful and that you are so worthy. And we want to be a people who love you so dearly, who seek you so faithfully, who surrender so easily, who give so generously, a people who have been changed by the fact that you came. We tell you today, Lord Jesus, that you're worthy. And we want the world to know it. We want to make much of Christmas because you came. And we want people to know the reason that you came. It's in your holy and precious name. The one that's above every name that we pray today. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast. Be sure to share this episode with any friends and family in your life who may benefit from it. And make sure you're subscribed and get notified so you never miss a sermon. If you're interested in learning more about Rolling Hills, download Church Center, our Rolling Hills app. Follow us on social media or visit our website at rollinghills.church. The Rolling Hills Sermon Podcast is a part of the Rolling Hills Podcast Network, available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Thanks for tuning in.